0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This episode is sponsored by Daydreamer Studios. Daydreamer's team works with anyone and everyone with a story to share, from small businesses, entrepreneurs, coaches, and storytellers. If you've been wanting to start a podcast but didn't know where to begin, Daydreamer can record, edit, distribute, and promote your show. I partnered with Daydreamer Studios right at the beginning of my own podcasting journey, and their team allowed me to easily make the jump into a brand new medium. Right now, Daydreamer Studios is running an amazing special offer, 50% off for all contracts, whether they're for three, six, nine, or 12 months. There are limited slots available, so if you've been thinking about starting or want to take your existing podcast to the next level, contact Daydreamer Studios now. This is episode number 7 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Joining me today is Timothy Tyler, author of several books, including The Decline and Fall of the Shah, as well as former member of the U.S. intelligence community who served throughout the Middle East over the course of his career. Tim, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm actually very excited for this interview because I am not nearly as knowledgeable about U.S. involvement in Iran as I would like to be. So I expect to learn a lot from you today, as a matter of fact, I'm sure, our listeners will learn a lot as well. I do know that the fall of the Shah in 1979 was kind of a watershed event towards the end of the 20th century there, and it still impacts our current events now more than 40 years later. But from what I understand, U.S. involvement in Iran started way back before the 1979 coup, right? So can you just kind of give us an origin point for U.S. involvement in Iran, take us back to where it all began? Sure.
1: Sure. U.S. forces were stationed in Iran during World War II. It was actually a key resupply point to resupply the Soviet Union, who was our ally during World War II fighting against the Germans. So we had a fair amount of soldiers there, but most of them were transportation units or quartermaster units, supply units. We really were not militarily occupying Iran. And after victory in Europe in May 1945, the British and American forces withdrew from Iran, but the Soviets, who were occupying the northern third of Iran, actually sent more soldiers in with tanks and set up two puppet republics there. So the UN had just come into being. Three of the first five UN resolutions actually dealt with Iran. So with U.S. support and diplomatic support from the United Nations, we actually forced the Soviets to pull out of Iran This was one of the first victories of the Cold War. And after that, we sold weapons to Iran. We provided military trainers for their military and police. This is pretty routine. We've done this with hundreds of countries around the world. And for instance, most of you probably remember General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the U.S. commander in Desert Storm. His father, who was also named Norman Schwarzkopf, helped to train the Iranian police during this time.
0: Hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that the Soviets had stayed after the end of World War II. There was a, I think there was a conference in Tehran, Tehran, wasn't there, during the war? That's correct. They called it a
1: big three conference. It was between U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. The fourth leader of the Allies was supposed to be the Nationalist Chinese under Chiang Kai-shek. But Chiang was not invited. So that sort of gave you an idea of the relative lack of importance of Chiang Kai shek.
0: Mm. Mm, I see. Okay, that's another event that kind of reverberates through history, but outside the scope of today's podcast for sure. So Iran came out of World War II pretty unscathed, then would that be accurate?
1: Yes. The Shah's father was named Reza Pahlavi, and he briefly tried to fight against the Allies, but basically his army collapsed in about a day and a half. And there were no battles in Iran. The Germans sent some SS paratroopers in there to try to stir up the tribes, but it really wasn't very successful. Hmm. So it was pretty unscathed at the end of World War II.
0: Okay. I think that I have read somewhere that there was a lot of post-war economic development in Iran. Was that under Reza or was that under the Shah when he took power later on?
1: That was under Reza's son, who was named Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. British Petroleum had a massive concession in Iran, and it was basically one of the wealthiest oil fields in the world. So long before the Saudis were becoming a petroleum superpower or the UAE was exploring their oil fields, Iran was really developing their oil fields. So they were the early leader in exporting oil Gas and exporting oil to the other developed countries of the world.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So that must have been a big boon to begin with, with British Petroleum heavily involved there. So moving forward a few years, I understand that there was a a coup in 1953. How did that, what led to that coup exactly? I'm really not very Hmm. up on that at all.
1: Well, you know, Justin, that's one of the most misunderstood events in Iranian history. A lot of people like yourself call it a coup. What actually happened was, under the Iranian Constitution, the Shah had the authority to dismiss any prime minister, and his Prime Minister was named Mohammed Mossadegh. Mossadegh had nationalized the British petroleum concessions in Iran, which was very popular, but he was also being backed by Tuday, which was the Iranian Communist Party, and President Eisenhower had a lot of concerns because In Eastern Europe, after World War II, you had a lot of coalition governments where the communists would suddenly arrest all the non-communists. So Eisenhower was really concerned this might happen in Iran. And they sent a single CIA officer into Iran, Kermit Roosevelt, who was the grandson of President Teddy Roosevelt. And you basically had a lot of different factions in Iran who were opposed to Mossadegh the Islamic fundamentalists, the Ayatollahs were opposed to him, the bazaar merchants were opposed to him, and a large part of the Iranian army was opposed to him. So Kermit basically organized these three groups to be against Mossadegh, and then he just had the Shah sign a declaration saying, Dear Mohammed, you are fired. Have a nice day. I mean, it was a little more flowery than that, but that would be the subtitle if we were watching a movie. So It wasn't really a coup. It was more the Shah exerting his constitutional
0: power. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely call that misunderstood. I've never heard it explained that way at all, in fact.
1: Yeah, it's very, if you watch the movie Argo, you know, at one point, one of the characters makes the comments that, well, we did it to them first, saying that the U.S. had gotten Mossadegh out of power. You know, we only had a single CIA officer in Iran involved in Operation Ajax. He was really reaching out to very powerful groups. Ayatollah Khashani was an early leader of the Iranian Shias, and he really didn't like Mossadegh. So it was very easy to reach out to him and to get his followers to be against Mossadegh.
0: Hmm. Okay, that was let's talk about using some soft power there. Then, so it wasn't it wasn't money, it wasn't force, it wasn't equipment from the U.S. Like in so many other cases during the Cold War, it was just Kermit's influence over the people that had the the power to do so, is that right?
1: Well, he did give some money to Ayatollah Khashani, but he was really pushing on an open door because Ayatollah Khashani really didn't like Mossadegh, nor did his followers. When communism was on the rise in the Middle East, it was very common that the communist would really crack down on the Islamic fundamentalist. So there was a lot of hatred in Iran by the Islamic fundamentalist against the communist. And a lot of the iranian army was also worried about most of that. you know they really didn't particularly care for him so roosevelt did pass out some money but you know i think the amount of money he gave ayatollah Khashoggi was only $10,000 so wow. you know that's a pretty effective revolution for only $10,000
0: yeah we got a, got our money's worth there no question about it exactly so what happened after these events did the CIA kind of capitalize on their their gains there in country already? Do they increase their presence or increase their influence?
1: Yes. The Shah was a big fan of the CIA after that. He actually made a statement that said the reason he had his throne back was because of the CIA. And he pretty much gave the CIA leeway to do whatever they wanted to in Iran. They opened up two listening posts in northern Iran called Qab Khan and Bashar, and both of those monitored a Soviet missile range in Baikonur, which was in the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. Today, it's part of Kazakhstan. But that was a key target for us. We were able to get great intelligence out of that missile range. The CIA also did a lot of liaison with Sabak, which was the Shah's intelligence agency, and very quietly, they ran some sources in the Iranian government. One source they ran; his code name was Raptor, and he was the chief of the Shah's bodyguards. And Raptor was basically the first source to say, "Hey, the Shah appears to be very sick all the time. We really had no idea he wasn't doing well until we got Raptor's reports."
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay, I see. What well, do you recall Raptor's name off the top of your head? He was a colonel in the Iranian
1: army but no it's I don't know his name off the top of my head.
0: Okay, okay, I've got you. So the CIA had the heads up then that the Shah was not doing well. So he I don't want to fast forward too much but I know he passed away not long before he not long after he left power, is that right?
1: That is correct. He actually first went to Egypt, then to Morocco. He had given a lot of aid to both of those two countries and they were willing to receive him. Then he went to the Bahamas. Then he went to New York for some medical treatment. Then Mexico. Then Panama. And finally back to Egypt where he died. People used to call him the Flying Dutchman. You know, he was always at sail, but he never went into any port for very long.
0: Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So that's way forward. And that's in 1980 or so, I think, that he passed away. Is that, have I got my dates right? Correct. Okay. So during his reign, how were US and Iranian relations overall. I don't know much about that period leading up to 1979
1: honestly. Oh, they they were fantastic. You know, basically the Shah once said that friendship with the US was the starting point for all of his policies. So for wow. instance, when South Vietnam needed more fighter planes, the Shah just said, "Hey, I'm happy to give you some from my own air force." He didn't do that by himself. The US government made a strong suggestion that he would help us out, but no other country was shipping South and Imam arms besides Iran. Wow, and wow. you know, really, whatever we wanted from Iran under the Shah, they were always
0: willing to help us. He was enormously pro-American. So, I think I recall you mentioned the Tuta Party earlier, right? That was the that was the communist party in Iran. Correct. Correct. Weren't they? I think they were outlawed, weren't they? At some point, like pretty early on.
1: They were outlawed, and their headquarters was actually in East Berlin under the Communists. And every terrorist group or every leftist group that operated out of East Germany always did so with the approval of the East German government and the Soviets. Oh, wow. So the Soviets were really trying to undermine the Shah. And there were a fair amount of leftists in Iran during that time. There was a fairly large terrorist group there called the Fedayeen, and they were Marxist in their ideology. And there was another terrorist group called Mujahideen-e-Kalq, and they had four different factions. One of those four factions was also Marxist in their outlook as well. It was a strange mixture of Marxism and Islamic fundamentalism.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that seems like an odd combination for sure. Exactly. So with the Tudor party outlawed, Were they being like actively suppressed, or was there like low level, like I don't want to say guerrilla warfare, but was there influence operations and that kind of thing going on during the Shah's reign?
1: Well, the two groups I just mentioned, the Fedayeen and Muhajadini Kalk, they were much more active than the Iranian Communist Party was. The Muhajadini Kalk actually assassinated six Americans in the 70s. They killed three US military officers, they assassinated two. Air Force lieutenant colonels who were driving to work. They killed an army lieutenant colonel who was walking down a street. And they also killed three contractors who were helping the Iranian military. So they were much more of a threat than, you know, the Iranian communists were. The Iranian communists were more of an ideological threat versus an active, like, we're going to show up to your front door and shoot you dead threat.
0: Okay, okay. I see. I didn't realize that so many Americans had been killed. Were these like events widely spaced out or was there like a period of violence there?
1: There's a period of about two years in 1975 and 1976 where they were regularly ambushing Americans and killing them. The U.S. military group commander at that point said all U.S. military personnel would be armed wherever they went in Iran. And the State Department had a big conniption fit with that. And he said, well, look, I'm sorry, but I work for the Department of the Air Force. I mean, I may be temporarily under your authority in Iran, but if you don't like what I'm doing, just go ahead and relieve me. And they had an attempted at assassination of two U.S. Air Force pilots who were advisors, and they just pulled out sidearms and started shooting at the Iranians. And, hey, the Iranians ran away. Wow! Most terrorists want to go after easy targets, not hard targets.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I had, I had not heard of that incident before. I'm surprised. So were they being targeted simply because they were in uniform or walking out of the embassy or were they involved in work that the like the Fedayeen wanted to stop
1: No they were really just being targeted because they were American military advisors uh, one of the guys who was killed was a financial controller you know he wasn't some deep undercover CIA agent he was a budget guy but apparently they had done surveillance of all these different advisors and then they went after the guys who had The easiest profile to go after. The three Hmm. contractors they were working on a communications project with the Iranians called the IBEX project. But, you know, these were three civilian contractors. I mean, they were really just technicians. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, wow. That's unfortunate. That this reminds me a little bit. There was some very similar stuff going on in Greece in the nineteen eighties, I think, with the seventeen November organization. They were I guess there was a lot of Americans targeted all over the world in the nineteen eighties by terrorists, but That's definitely got echoes of what was happening in Greece around the same time period as well.
1: That's correct. They actually killed the CIA station chief in Athens during that time period.
0: Yeah, I think right in front of his family and everything, if I recall Mm -hmm. correctly, like after a Christmas party or something.
1: Well, and he had shown very poor force protection methods. He had lived in the same house as his predecessor, and apparently tour guides in Athens would point out his house and say, that's where the CIA station chief lives. Not mm-hmm. exactly a very good undercover policy.
0: Right, right. It's unfortunate that it finally took a death to to wake people up. I guess I'm sure that a lot of things changed in the aftermath of that. Right. So in Iran, so were there major changes once these once these targeted killings started happening? Well, the Shah pretty much told Savak, just round up everyone involved in the killings and
1: eliminate them. So they did go after a lot of the mujahideen e guys and killed them. The Fedayeen, they were a little more low-profile. They had armed terrorists, but they weren't directly going after the Americans yet. So they did go after a lot of mujahideen e guys and killed them. And ironically, you know, I was in New York several years ago. I actually saw mujahideen e people trying to raise money on the streets of New York. And I asked them, hey, aren't you the guys who killed a whole bunch of Americans in the 70s? And I didn't really get much of a response on that one.
0: Wow. Wow. They didn't expect people to remember that far back, I guess. No. Man, that's incredible that they were still around for so long. So at what point did these groups start to organize and start to become like a very, very serious threat toward the the Shah?
1: Well, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was actually seized twice. And the first time it was seized in February 1979, on Valentine's Day, it was actually captured by the Fedayeen, who were Iranian Marxists, and the communist faction of the Muhajadini calc. So that was the first time they really came out of nowhere. I mean, they had 50 caliber machine guns that they were firing at the embassy. They had M60s. You know, we're not talking about people just waving banners who gingerly took over the U.S. embassy. but Since the Marxists were rivals for power with Ayatollah Khomeini, he very quickly squelched down on that seizure. And that gave Mm. the U.S. a misapprehension over what would happen if someone ever seized the embassy again. They thought, oh, the new regime is really pro-American. No, the new regime was just anti-communist, even though the communists played a role in overthrowing the Shah's regime.
0: Okay, okay, I see. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So they'll take care of their own enemies, but that doesn't make them our friend. Right. For sure. So how did what led to the Shah's downfall exactly? Well, the Shah was
1: an obsessive micromanager. One time, a college marching band from the U.S. was going to come to the Shah, and he was the one who made decisions on whether to give them visas or not. I mean, in our government, you would never have the president of the United States making a decision on whether a band would get visas to come to the U.S. or not. And unfortunately, he did have some competent prime ministers and competent generals, but he never really gave them any authority to do anything. So he's dying of cancer. He's not making decisions. He's hobbling all of his generals and prime ministers. And he started making some reforms, but it was really too little too late. His last prime minister was a guy named Shah Por Bakhtiar, who was actually a legitimate Democrat. But this would be like if you're losing a baseball game and you bring in Hank Aaron at the bottom of the ninth and you're 10 runs behind and you say, hey, Hank Aaron, win the game for us. It's a little bit too late at that point. Right, right.
0: OK, so it was more the Shah's leadership or lack of leadership that kind of sabotaged his own ability to stay in power?
1: That's correct. At one point, he banned all the political parties in Iran. And he said everyone had to be a member of Rastakis, which was his new unity party. But Rastakis was sort of a dead party. And if he hadn't banned all the parties, then as he liberalized, you actually would have had a structure for people to join instead of having to be involved in armed revolution. And He was just very indecisive. Like he put in a military government at one point, and everyone said, Oh, military dictatorship, all the you know, demonstrations are gonna go away. But he picked one of his weakest generals to be in charge of the military government. He had another general named General Avisi, and General Avisi just said, Put me in charge of the government, I will fill the streets with bodies, and all the demonstrations will go away in a day. And and instead he picked a very weak general named General Azari. Who basically he was the leader for about thirty days and then he had a heart attack and he went to Washington, DC for hmm. medical treatment, and he never came back.
0: It's unfortunate that he couldn't rely on on better people. I mean, if the only choices are between a like a bloodthirsty kind of guy and a weak leader who's going with health problems, that's not a very good choice at all.
1: Well, there were some other generals. The deputy minister of war in Iran was an Air Force general named Hassan Tufanayan. And he had been the guy who helped bring F-14s to Iran. So technically, he was very brilliant. And he probably would have been a less bloodthirsty choice to have gone to. There, he also had an airborne brigade in his military. And it was headed by a guy named General Manasheer Khosrodad. And Khosrodad was pretty gung-ho as well. So I think it was not only a choice between a bloodthirsty guy and a weak guy, but The weak guy was also not very charismatic. So, you know, you were picking probably the worst choice to run a military government.
0: Hmm. Okay. Uh, A minute ago, you mentioned how the Tudor Party's headquarters was in East Germany. So during the Shah's reign, was there a lot of money coming from East Germany or from the Soviet Union, for example, to kind of counter the U.S. influence in Iran? Or were they locked out?
1: Well, the Soviets did have a pretty large KGB presence in Iran, but their real focus was just trying to get sources within the Iranian government. They had recruited an Iranian general named Mogarabi, and he was providing a lot of intelligence about the Iranian government. But the Soviets, I think, never really thought that the Shah would collapse. He had a 700,000-man military with an almost unlimited defense budget and although the shah was very sick you know he was a very polished guy i mean he had known every president from harry s truman all the way through jimmy carter he generally had good relations with all of them he knew margaret thatcher he knew winston churchill i mean he he knew everybody and i think a lot of people were really surprised that his regime fell as quickly as it did
0: hmm. yeah certainly sounds like it so they did not have much influence on anything up until nineteen seventy nine or so, is that right? When you're saying they you mean the the US and Britain, Soviets, East Germans, oh, anybody trying to counter our own influence over Iran. It,
1: they pass they passed some money on to you know the Iranian Communist Party, but no. Really the revolution was primarily led by the Islamic fundamentalist. And after the revolution, the Soviet ambassador kept on trying to meet with Ayatollah Khomeini. And the first two times he was allowed to meet with them, the third time he was stopped at gunpoint. And Ayatollah Khomeini's bodyguards told him, if you want to meet with someone, meet with the Iranian foreign ministry. We do not want you meeting with Ayatollah Khomeini anymore. Hmm. So although they tried to get some influence, the Iranians were not really very pro-Soviet at the end of the day, after the revolution.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was going to say that would make for kind of strange bedfellows. They're a hardcore Islamist regime and atheistic communist regime. So I I didn't really know how much influence the Soviets had there afterwards. Right. So was there a, was there like a, a tipping point moment? Was there any violence when the Shah finally, finally left and Khomeini took over? Well,
1: yes. In February of 1979, You still had Shah Por Bakhtiar in charge, and he was, you know, a moderate Democrat. He had some popular support within Iran. So Khomeini came back to Tehran, and some of the Air Force cadets and some of the Air Force warrant officers started demonstrating in favor of Khomeini at an air base in Tehran called Doshan Tepeh. Well, the Shah had a unit called the Imperial Guard that was the most fanatically pro shah of all the Iranian military units. So they got in a big gun battle with the Air Force personnel at Doshan Tepe Air Base. And basically, that was the beginning of the end. You know, the Air Force personnel broke into the armory. They started tossing M-16s over the fence of the air base to people outside. There started to be a bigger and bigger gun battle. And at this point, too, a lot of the Shah's generals had already made secret deals under the table with the Islamic fundamentalists. The Shah had already left the country. His three top generals had left the country. So anybody behind, unless they were really stupid, they had to see the handwriting on the wall. You know, hey, we're on a losing side. Let's try to make some deals under the table. And most of the Shah's generals were had to flee or were executed after the revolution.
0: Hmm. Wow. Was there like a wholesale flight out of the country where there are a lot of people that left and became expatriates?
1: Yes. And around November of 1978, the Shah arrested his most, his longest serving prime minister. And when that happened, the guy's name was Amir Abbas Soveda. A lot of the senior civil servants and a lot of the millionaires said, okay, if one of the Shah's best friends can be arrested, the handwriting is on the wall. So a lot of them moved to Los Angeles. The Shah also arrested the head of Savak, whose name was General Namatullah Nasiri. And again, a lot of people said, wow, General Nasiri did everything he could to serve the Shah. So if he's being arrested, you know, the most loyal of all the Shah's generals, it's time to go. And that was the beginning of the weakening of the Shah's regime because everyone started thinking
0: about, hmm,
1: how can we catch the next flight to Beverly Hills?
0: Mm-hmm. I see, I see. So how long did the period of the of the turnover take? Was it just a matter of weeks or a matter of months?
1: Well, the revolution really began in January 1978 in a city called Colm, which is where a lot of the Ayatollahs were based. And it pretty much ended in mid-February 1979. So that was about 13 months. Oh, wow. There was an Islamic fundamentalist government put in power in February 1979, but they tried to have good relations with the Americans. And when Islamic fundamentalists seized the embassy in November 1979, the prime minister of that government and the foreign minister of that government went to the Ayatollah and they said, look, you can expel the American embassy, but you just can't throw them in jail. This is a violation of international law. And when the Ayatollah pretty much shrugged his shoulders, to their credit, both these guys resigned. And the foreign minister, Ibrahim Yazdi, was actually a heart surgeon from Houston, Texas. He was a dual U.S.-Iranian national. So, you know, obviously this guy was not very anti-American. He had a house in Texas. He'd practiced as a cardiologist there for years and years. But the problem was the moderates in the Iranian government really didn't have the power. It was the Ayatollahs who had all the real power.
0: Okay. Okay. I see. So earlier you mentioned that there were two attacks and occupations of the U.S. Embassy. The first one was in February 1979, and then later the, the better known one in November of 1979. So I'm confused as to what changes were made after the February attack. Did the U.S. not take security more seriously or... Or what exactly happened to lead to another occupation later on?
1: Well, we had one of the largest embassies in the world in Iran under the Shah. And basically, after the first attack, we pared down the embassy from about a thousand people to only about 80. And the Iranians gave us, us being the US Embassy, some people for security at the embassy, but they were all actually former terrorists. And some of the terrorists went up to the ambassador, William Sullivan, and said, Don't worry, we really know your daily r- routine, because one of our jobs until recently was to kidnap you and assassinate you. So My you know, obviously having a terrorist tell you that, it doesn't really give you a lot of faith. So they eventually were able to get these guys off the embassy grounds, and they were given some Iranian police instead. Who were in uniform outside the gates. But when this big demonstration started in November 1979, the police were pretty apathetic. They didn't really do anything to stop the demonstration. The demonstration was essentially kicked off because the Shah had gone to New York to get medical care, and the Iranians were convinced the U.S. was plotting a counter-revolution. And the Soviets also... Had made a lot of allegations on a radio station they had in Baku, Azerbaijan. And that radio station was saying, oh, all this, you know, there's all this spying going on in the US Embassy. They're getting ready to do a counter revolution. So they were definitely pouring oil on the fire.
0: Okay. I see. So, in your opinion, was the CIA planning a counter revolution? Because that sounds like something that they've done in the past for sure.
1: Absolutely not. Jimmy Carter was not a lover of covert action. He actually put one of his Naval Academy classmates to run the CIA, an admiral named Stansfield Turner. And Turner is generally regarded as one of the weaker directors of central intelligence in the CIA's history. About the only thing that Carter approved in terms of covert action for Iran was he did get six Americans out of there who had fled to the Canadian embassy the second time that the embassy was seized by radicals. But that was about it. And that's what we would call non-lethal covert action. No one died getting those six Americans out of Tehran. Right, right, right.
0: I think if I've read correctly, um, Stansfield-Turner, he ended up letting go about 200 case officers from a lot of different positions. Am I thinking of the right time period? Was that right around the the late 1970s when this occurred?
1: Well, after the Vietnam War, the CIA got rid of about, actually it was about 800 positions in the Department of Operations, the, the Directorate of Operations. And those were both paramilitary positions and case officer positions. Some of those jobs were actually vacant, but The 70s was a very hostile time for the CIA. They were no longer viewed as America's heroes. You know, there was a lot of movies like Three Days of the Condor, which portrayed the CIA as very evil murderers. And so I think a lot of your World War II veterans who'd worked in the CIA for a number of years got out, and they really weren't replaced by anyone very experienced. At one point... In the CIA, I think you only had one person who spoke Farsi, which is the language of Iran. Oh, wow. And he was a case officer working in Iran at the time. But, you know, in an entire intel agency to only have one linguist in a country, Hmm. that's not very good.
0: Yeah, that's a, a huge weak point for certain. I think language capability is something that all American intel agencies have struggled with a long time, for sure. And that's also
1: probably one of our faults during the Iranian Revolution. There was a female diplomat named Catherine Coob, and she was fluent in Farsi. There was a U.S. Army colonel named Charles Stone, and he was actually a graduate of the Iranian Airborne School. He was the head of the U.S. military group in Iran when the embassy was seized. He was fluent in Farsi. There was a counselor officer named Mike Matrinko who spoke very good Farsi. And then there was one CIA officer who was fluent in Farsi. But you're talking about four people out of about 80. I mean, that's not really very good.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. So the presence in the embassy has been pared way down. The Shah is out of the country, and there's all these demonstrations happening outside. So can you kind of take us through the embassy hostage crisis for people who have are not super familiar with it?
1: Sure. You know, the embassy seized, and there's roughly, we'll say, 75 people who are seized there. Six of them, primarily from the counselor section, which issues visas, got away originally to the British embassy and later holed up in the Canadian embassy. The agricultural attaché, who worked in a building outside the embassy compound, also got away. He was one of those six. To the Iranians didn't have a very good understanding of America. And so they thought that All the women in the embassy and all the minorities were forced to take those jobs at the embassy. So they had them all released as victims of imperialism. About the only woman who was not released in the embassy was Catherine Koob, because since she spoke such good Farsi, they all thought that she secretly worked for the CIA. Hmm. And the actual CIA officers in the embassy said, look, she's not a CIA officer. Please release her. They would not let her go. So, okay, so first you have two groups of minorities and women released from the embassy. You also had a State Department officer who came down with muscular dystrophy while he was a hostage, and that was the only flicker of humanity the Iranians had. They actually did release him, and he was dead in about two years. He wasn't faking it. He was really very, very sick with that. So they let him go as well. Unfortunately, they discovered the true identities of all three of the CIA officers there. And they beat them up quite a lot. The Mill Group guy, Colonel Stone, I believe at one point they hit him in the mouth so hard that one of his teeth was broken. And he never got any dental care for that for about a year and a half. So it was pretty brutal. They did some mock executions on some of the people. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rader, who was the assistant Air Force attache, they told him, we know your handicapped son takes a school bus every day in Washington, D.C., and this is the name of the bus stop that he goes to every day, and it was the right name. So they had some good information flowing to them from the United States, and a lot of the hostages they would leave with their hands tied behind their back for months at a time. About the only hostage who really got the upper hand on the Iranians was an Army warrant officer And his name was Joe Hall. And Joe basically said that he was in charge of the CIA's mold program. And when the Iranians asked, well, what is the mold program? He said, well, the CIA has gone to every wheat field in Iran, and they have poisoned it with mold. And the mold, once the wheat blossoms, will be poisonous. So the Iranians asked him, well, how do we counter this mold program? They said the only way to counter it is if you pour gasoline in all these wheat fields and light them on fire. So the Iranians are burning thousands of acres of wheat fields. And one of their demands for the release of the hostages was the U.S. had to publicly renounce their mold program. And of course, no one on the U.S. side had any idea what they were talking about. We don't have any mold programs. But the Iranians were so paranoid that the CIA was embedded in every facet of Iranian culture, that Joe Hall really used that paranoia to make the Iranians even more paranoid.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So they were, in reality, there were only three CIA case officers in country and only a couple of Farsi speakers, but they felt like they were, they were enmeshed throughout Iranian society at that time?
1: That is correct. And you know, one of the CIA case officers was a former Marine aviator He had only been in country, I think, for 34 days by the time that the embassy was actually seized. And, you know, he's openly said, I only had a couple of sources within the Iranian government. I mean, he said, I I, I really didn't recruit almost anybody. So, you know, it's funny that the Iranians are so convinced that we have this den of espionage. And then the CIA is saying, no, we have almost no sources at all in Iran.
0: Right, right. They were way overestimating their capabilities and effectiveness in the country at that time, at least. So you mentioned that the hostages sometimes they were they were tied up for months at a time. I was going to ask you, what was daily life like? Because they were held for, you know, what, over a year? 444 days, I think?
1: Yeah, well, you know, they were held in the basement of the embassy and some storerooms. Some of the hostages have said they'd be given frozen steaks to eat, but not be thawed frozen steaks they were like literally given frozen steaks and just said, well, here's your dinner. And they try to gnaw on them and they'd still be frozen solid. The Iranians were just really brutal to a lot of these guys. You know, they would do play Russian roulette with them. They would do mock executions. One of the hostages, Mike Matrinko, who actually was fluent in Farsi, he would use his Farsi to curse out Ayatollah Khomeini. So at one point, They locked him in a freezing room for two weeks with very few clothes on. And, you know, a lot of the other hostages actually thought that Mike Matrinko had been executed because they hadn't seen him for so long. And the day that all the hostages were actually released, they were amazed to see that Mike Matrinko was still alive.
0: Wow. I had no idea, honestly, that it was as brutal as all that, because like you said, these were embassy personnel. They were, you know, seized on the embassy grounds and everything, and they were verifiably civilians for the most part. So I'm I'm just shocked at how brutally they were treated.
1: Well, you know, Nazi Germany did many terrible atrocities during World War II. But when we declared war on Nazi Germany, they basically put all the American diplomats at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin in a hotel in the Alps, and then they eventually repatriated them to Switzerland. Hmm. And Japan, for all the atrocities they did, they did the same thing. They eventually repatriated all these diplomats to Portugal, which was one of the few neutral countries during World War II. So really, Iran did something that is unparalleled in world history, seizing an embassy and holding all the accredited diplomats as hostages for over a year. When we asked the Iranians to close their embassy in Washington, D.C., we did it the correct way. We sent them a diplomatic note. We said relations between the two countries are hereby suspended. And we gave them seventy-two hours to leave the country. We let them ship their household goods home. You know, if they needed kids' school records, they were able to have those forwarded to Tehran. Very different from the way the Iranians treated us.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't realized that as well, but that's that's how we normally do it. We've kicked out Russian diplomats recently, and a few Chinese diplomats, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, that's that's how most countries handle that kind of stuff. But we were certainly seeing the, the dawn of a new era there is what it seems like.
1: Well, a new era and a era that had no respect for international law. And unfortunately, since the Iranian revolution, Iran has really, their conduct has been exemplified
0: by ignoring international law. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I know, of course, there's, there was a very famous hostage rescue that was planned after all this time. Can you take us a little mm-hmm. bit through that and the, the consequences of that as well? Sure. It was
1: called Operation Eagle Claw. And what basically happened was they brought in Delta Force, some Army Rangers, and some Marine and Air Force pilots, and they flew them to an unused airstrip in central Iran. And the code name for this was Desert One. And then they had a smaller team of CIA personnel and special forces personnel waiting in Tehran. So the guys were going to fly into Tehran, seize a sports stadium, and then hit the Iranian foreign ministry and the embassy, liberate all the hostages, go to the sports stadium, and then fly out. Unfortunately, at Desert One, there was a collision between one of the helicopters and one of the C-130s, and a number of Americans were killed, about eight of them. And President Carter, at that point, made the decision that he would suspend the operation. But the interesting thing was the support team in Tehran, they were just sort of left in Tehran. And it was like, oh, yeah, we, that's right. We've got some guys in Tehran. So there were two U.S. Army Special Forces sergeants. And undercover, they just flew back to Germany. They got out OK. There was a CIA officer who people called Bill, and he was able to get out OK And then there was an Air Force staff sergeant, and the Air Force staff sergeant had actually grown up in Iran, but he had left when he was about six or seven. So although he spoke Farsi, he sounded like he was a little kid, or in his words, he sounded like he was mentally retarded. So (laughs) he was able to get out of Iran as well. And recently, another Army Special Forces sergeant has written a book saying he was in Iran. Interestingly enough, he was the only Iranian member of the Special Forces, so he went in on a separate reconnaissance mission. But you really have to give the CIA and the Special Forces credit because really, out of nowhere, they were able to put six or seven people undercover in Iran in an incredibly difficult time. At the time, if you were an Iranian who had an American Express card, you would get arrested as a suspected spy. Because that's how high the level of anti-American paranoia was in Iran. So I really take my hat off to all these brave Americans who risked their lives because, yes, the guys at Desert One were heroes, but at least they were all heavily armed. The guys in Tehran, they just sort of had to get out by hook or by crook. And luckily, all those guys got out of the country. Sure. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people in the Special Forces and in the CIA who've done incredible things, and they really don't get the credit they deserve. There was a CIA officer who flew a plane into Desert One before the actual assault force arrived, and he tested the surface of Desert One to make sure that it was strong enough to support aircraft. And, you know, two CIA officers in a plane flying into a hostile country, that's pretty brave. You know, I take my hat off to those guys as well.
0: Absolutely. So, we talked a little bit briefly about the six who got out via the Canadian embassy and I, I know that they're the subject of the movie Argo where they exfiltrated before the attempted hostage rescue. I don't recall the timeline exactly.
1: That is correct. They were exfiltrated before the attempted hostage rescue. You know, one of those guys later ended up actually in Afghanistan when I was there and he was again an agricultural consultant and Mike Matrinko who was so tortured by the Iranians, also served in Afghanistan around 2006. So certainly these people didn't say, well, I'm done with the U.S. government. They continue to risk their lives decades after that.
0: Wow. Okay. So you've you've worked with one of the six hostages that were in the Canadian embassy then?
1: Well, we were listed in the same phone book. Working Uh with them is a little bit of an exaggeration. He was in one of the remoter provinces of Afghanistan, and I was at Camp Phoenix, which was one of the larger books, larger bases in Kabul. Ah, okay. Yeah, that would really be exaggerating. I mean, we were both part of the U.S. government in Afghanistan, but we weren't exactly in I've the same you. office. I've
0: got you. Yeah, it's that's amazing that somebody that went through an experience like that so early in their career would stick around for another. 25 plus years for sure.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, again, I think there's a lot of unsung heroes in the US government and, you know, most of the very modest people are too modest to even give themselves credit for what they did. So I really do just, you know, applaud a lot of these unsung heroes.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. No question about it. So with the, there was the one successful rescue of the six uh, the 6 I wouldn't call them hostages, but the six personnel at the Canadian embassy. And there was the unsuccessful rescue, the Eagle Claw. Were there any other plans that were put in place or that were attempted either before, during, or after Eagle Claw?
1: Yes, there was a follow-on mission called Operation Honey Badger. And there was a U.S. Air Force major general who had actually been the military group commander in Tehran. His name was Richard Secord, and he was put in charge of it. And, you know, they were trying to get it going, but the problem was the Iranians had dispersed the hostages all over Iran after the initial attempt. Like, I think at one point there was four or five hostages up into Tabriz, which was right by the Turkish border. So it was really almost impossible to get these guys out because you might be able to get a few out of one city. But, you know, it, at one point you were down to about 53 hostages. So they were just all over Iran. Hmm. And, you know, the the one group that really came out with shining colors from all this was the U.S. Navy. The Iranians had four guided missile destroyers that were being built for the Iranian Navy at Ingalls Shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And so the U.S. Navy just took them over. They said, hey, thanks a lot. There's great air conditioning on these ships because they're going to operate in the Persian Gulf. Thanks for the free gift. And the Iranians had ordered 80 F-14s from the U.S., and the 80th F-14 was getting ready to take off for Iran. And the U.S. Navy said, hey, thanks a lot for the free F-14. So <laughs> the U.S. Navy was really the only part of the U.S. government that came out ahead during the hostage crisis.
0: Wow. Wow. I didn't realize that. I knew that they... So actually, to this day, they're still flying the old F-14s from the 1970s, aren't they? I mean, the few that still fly? That is correct.
1: That is correct. And, you know, something else interesting that the Iranians did was... They decided that they would walk away from a lot of their loans to U.S. banks, and that was going to be their way of forcing a depression on U.S. banks. For instance, Citibank had $200 million of loans to Iran. So Iran said, well, we're walking away from them. Watch Citibank go bankrupt. Well, the Iranians are not very good at basic math because they had $700 million in cash on deposit with Citibank. When they reneged on the two hundred million dollars in loans, so Citibank basically took over all their assets because they were in default of their loans, and they made half a billion dollars in one day. Wow! So, yeah, you know, not always the smartest people in the world here. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was short-sighted for sure.
1: Yeah, and there was another time in nineteen eighty-eight when the Iranians attacked a oil field off of Sharjah, which is one of the seven emirates in the UAE. And so they very heavily bombed this oil field. They left all these oil you know, platforms on fire. It was called the Mubarak oil field off of the island of Abu Musa. And then when the Revolutionary Guards briefed to the Iranian cabinet, you know, hey, we destroyed this major UAE oil field and the UAE is an ally of the U.S. and we bankrupted them. Well, the 49 percent owner of the Mubarak oil field was actually the Iranian government. And so they just basically really hurt their own profitability because under the terms of the contract with the UAE, the Iranians had to pay for any repairs to the oil field. So, you know, Iran sometimes, I mean, their attempts at anti-U.S. action are so stupid, it just boggles the mind.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah, there's some real debacles there for sure. So after the hostage crisis finally ends, what was it that led them exactly to return the hostages? I know it coincides with Reagan taking office, but what was their reasoning exactly?
1: Well, their original demand was that the Shah had to be turned returned to Iran for a trial. And the Shah actually died at one point. So generally speaking, putting dead people on trial is not really that good a legal principle. So. That removed a lot of their impetus right there to have the hostages. And then Iraq attacked Iran because the southern third of Iraq is very heavily populated by Shias. And they had a lot of spiritual and cultural connections with Iran. And Saddam Hussein was very nervous that the Iranian revolution might somehow spread to Iran. He was a Sunni, not a Shia. So. When Iraq suddenly attacked Iran, now, you know, you've got a country that's in the middle of a major war. They're a pariah nation. And a lot of people, even in Iran, are sort of saying, okay, why do we still have all these hostages? And I think the thought was, well, if we release the hostages, at some point, relations might go back to normal. But we have not had diplomatic relations with Iran since November of 1979. So, you know, we're talking about basically almost 42 years. So I don't know ever if when we will get back to having normal diplomatic relations
0: with them. Hmm. Yeah, that was a follow up question I had was what what has happened in the in the aftermath of that? How has the U.S. worked with Iran, if at all? Because it's been completely adversarial since 1980 or so, hasn't it?
1: That is correct. Iran has used a group of proxy terrorist groups to attack the U.S. The infamous 1983 Beirut bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks was carried out by terrorists who had ties to Iran. They also blew up Kobar Towers, which was a U.S. Air Force housing project in Saudi Arabia in 1986. And the group that blew it up was a group called Hezbollah of the Hejaz. The Hejaz is a Saudi region, and they were all given training by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. We also had a brief shooting war with the Iranians in 1988. They had been tacking a number of tankers and merchant ships in the Persian Gulf. So they got into a firefight with the U.S. Navy, and we sunk two warships and that was pretty much it for the Iranian Navy. You know, After that, they became much more tolerant and sort of came up with this idea, hey, let's live and let live. Let's, let's not openly attack the U.S. anymore. But Iran has continued to use proxy terrorist groups since then to attack us. For instance, a group with ties to the Iranians kidnapped Lieutenant Colonel Higgins, who was a Marine observer in Lebanon and killed him hmm. in 1988.
0: Hmm. Okay, I don't think I'm aware of that case. I'm going to have to look at that one for sure. So the Iranians have had a lot of uh, covert operations against us and proxies fighting against us. To your knowledge, what have we done on the covert side to get back at Iran since 1980?
1: Not really very much, to be honest. I think the Iranians are their own worst enemy. It's this country that's got incredible amounts of oil, and yet there's a lot of poverty in the country. And it's a country that's got a lot of very educated people but they don't allow them to leave Iran and work elsewhere. So really, you know, they're almost like the old Soviet Union where they have this uncanny knack for making their own people miserable. I mean, I don't really think we have to do that much to, you know, make their country a terrible place to live. They're doing a great job of that by themselves.
0: Mhm. It does seem that way and I know there's been some revolutionary activity in in recent years right? I haven't followed it too closely, but there's been a lot of mass demonstrations in Iran against the regime. And I'm not sure how successful that were those were, if they led to any changes. But I'm, I'm definitely curious if those were U.S. sponsored or U.S. influenced in any way.
1: You know, I think the only U.S. influence we have there is a lot of people look at our country and realize we are truly a democracy and we are a country where Even though there may be occasional spates of bad feelings, you know, generally everybody lives peacefully with one another, and so various nations around the world want their countries to be like our countries. And you know, a number of years ago, there was a democratic movement in Iran, and the Revolutionary Guards was just shooting people at point blank range and killing women on the streets of Tehran. The Shah was overthrown by a broad coalition of people. He was overthrown by Islamic fundamentalists, Marxists. And Democrats, people who honestly wanted Iran to be a democracy. The Shah's last Democratic prime minister, Shafur Bakhtiar, at one point he said, why don't we just have a referendum in Iran? And if Ayatollah Khomeini gets more votes than me, I will step aside. Hmm. And, you know, the the Ayatollahs will not go for that. Shahpur Bakhtiar was subsequently assassinated in Iran. Excuse me. He was subsequently assassinated in Paris. General Golem Ali Ovisi, who was one of the Shah's generals, the hardliner who wanted to fill the streets with bodies, was also assassinated. And they even assassinated someone in Bethesda, Maryland. They had a terrorist dressed as a mailman go to his front door and say that he had a package for him that he had to sign for. And then when the guy showed up, Ali Akbar Tata Bai was his name, they, the terrorist shot him at point-blank range at his own front door. So, you know, the Iranians have done terrorism in the U.S. And, you know, I don't really view us doing anything to destabilize Iran or against Iran. We would just like them to go back to becoming a democracy, just as we want every country on Earth to become a democracy. You know, we're not only singling out Iran to be a democracy. Countries all around the world, Panama, Grenada, Western Europe. I mean, you know, we all encourage them to be democracies. This is pretty much a uniform goal of U.S. foreign policy.
0: Right. Absolutely. Is Do you have any thoughts on where, you know, the next five to 10 years might take us in U.S. and Iranian relations? Or are they going to stay as bad as they have been the past few years? Or do you see any improvements on the horizon?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of people in America and certainly some people in the Biden administration who would like better relations with Iran. I have served on the periphery of three different wars in my life. So certainly, I don't want to go to war with anyone, and I'd like to see us have good relations with every country on Earth. But that's a two-way street. And the problem with Iran is, just as the Ku Klux Klan espouses a lot of racial hatred as part of who they are, Iran espouses a lot of anti-American hatred over who they are. You know, Iran will always say, well, the CIA overthrew Mossadegh. Okay, what about all the Iranians who are involved in that? I mean, one CIA guy did this? Is this an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? I mean, come on.
0: Right. So I don't
1: really think the Ayatollahs in Iran want good relations with America. Back when President Obama did that deal with Iran where he gave them a lot of money, I thought it was very significant that The Iranians did not ask for the U.S. embassy to be reopened in Tehran, and we did not push for that. I think looking back, that was probably a mistake. We should have at least gone on the record and saying, we want our embassy reopened and let the Iranians say, no, we're not going to let you reopen the embassy, because that would have been a huge propaganda victory for
0: us. That's a great point for sure. So we have not had formalized diplomatic relationship with them in 40 years or more at this point, is that correct?
1: That is correct. You know, they, they okay. had a embassy in Washington for a few weeks after the hostages were seized in November, 1979, but we asked them to close it. There is an Iranian mission to the United Nations. So at the United Nations, we have probably some limited contact with them, but you know, no diplomatic relations for 42 years. I think only North Korea have we not had diplomatic relations for a longer time period.
0: Hmm. Okay. And even those have, have changed. I don't know if I'd say improved, but they've certainly changed in the past couple of years. So I am kind of hopeful that things might one day change with Iran and we won't be at each other's throats anymore after this.
1: Sure. I mean, President Trump paid a brief visit to North Korea. He went to the village of Panmunjom in the DMZ, and he took a few steps into North Korea, maybe, maybe only 20 or 30 feet. But at least it was a symbolic visit between our two countries. And I think it was a statement on behalf of America that, yes, we do want to have diplomatic interaction with the North Koreans. You haven't really seen anything similar like that in Iran. I mean, the last U.S. president to visit Iran was Jimmy Carter in 1977. And certainly Mm -hmm. the Iranians have not been asking for a U.S. president to visit there. It's not like they're asking. We're saying no. They're not even making the invitation.
0: Right. Absolutely. I'm not expecting an invitation anytime soon, in particular after the the killing of General Soleimani in Iraq uh, what, 18 months ago, I think. So I'm sure they're still kind of stinging over that as well.
1: Well, and the problem is the Revolutionary Guards is routinely involved in terrorism all around the world. But then they're sort of amazed when A guy who's routinely involved in terrorist activities is killed.
0: Oh, I know it. Yeah, he had it coming, no question about it. I mean, he was responsible for the death of hundreds of American soldiers with those. I think they were shipping shipping the explosively formed penetrators, right, to uh, the insurgents in Iraq throughout their whole occupation there?
1: No, that's correct. And then you also had a lot of the Shia militias in Iraq who had confirmable ties with Iran. I mean— I don't really understand why Iran has so much hatred against the U.S., but it's just one of those crazy things. You know, if you look at history, there's always strong hatreds that permeate way beyond the level of common sense, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Well, Tim, this has been really informative. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. So your book is The Decline and Fall of the Shah, right? Where can people find that if they want to read a little more?
1: Well, if you go to Barnes & Noble's website, which is www.bn.com, you can Google the Decline and Fall of the Shaw and pull it up there. And I've also read in a second book, which is called A History of Panama, 1502 to 2002. And that is also for sale at Barnes & Noble's website. Both of these are Nook books, so they're not available on a shelf at Barnes & Noble. You'll have to special order them.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm going to have to look for that for sure. Are you working on another book right now? What are you doing at the moment?
1: Well, I'm working on a book about why we lost the war in Afghanistan. I did four years there as an advisor. So I do have some unique insight on that. And I'm also working on a fourth book, which is the story of the civil war in Sierra Leone. You know, there were a lot of people in Sierra Leone, a lot of Sierra Leonean army officers who basically risked their lives to win the war over there. And we really don't give those guys the credit they deserve. Sierra Leone today is a peaceful country. The Sierra Leoneans are some of the nicest people in Africa. I mean, it's a genuine pleasure to go there. And so I just like to sort of tell their story, you know, that there's all these people who helped squelch a very bloody civil war and build a functioning country. And unfortunately, the world has forgotten them.
0: Yeah, I would say that's accurate. I, I can't really talk very knowledgeably about Sierra Leone uh, at all, as a matter of fact. So I'm looking forward to reading your book on that once it's out. When do you anticipate your next couple of books will be out?
1: Well, let's see. The book on Afghanistan may be done as early as the fall. There's a very lengthy review process by the U.S. government, and they never really seem eager to approve anything that I write, even if it's very non-controversial.
0: That's unfortunate, because it would be great if that book was coming out sooner rather than later, because it's so timely to talk about the fall of Afghanistan right now, no doubt about it.
1: Well, you know, we had a very brilliant general over there who later became the U.S. ambassador, General uh, Carl Eikenberry. And to his credit, he was saying as early as 2006 and early as 2007, that the Afghan National Army was really not up to standards. And we were trying to turn the war over to them and we couldn't. And, you know, General Eikenberry was one of those figures like General Stillwell in nationalist China in World War II. You know, Stillwell kept on saying there was a lot of corruption in China and his reward was to sort of be relieved of his command and go off into obscurity. But I really do take my hat off to General Eikenberry because it's always hard to say, hey, we're not winning a war. And he showed enormous integrity by saying that early that there were serious problems in Afghanistan. So I'm going to try to focus a little more on his story and and what he talked about.
0: That's good. That's very prescient because it is very hard to tell the truth sometimes when nobody wants to hear the truth. Unfortunately.
1: Yes. No. And he he you know he was a great man because he took the job as ambassador to Afghanistan not because he wanted a cushy post. I mean you can think of all the wonderful countries in Western Europe that would be great to be an ambassador in, but because he wanted to try to win the war. By using things like foreign aid and rebuilding schools, rebuilding roads, rebuilding bridges. But, you know, unfortunately, nobody really gave him the attention it was warranted. And now today we're seeing how weak the Afghan National Army is. And you realize, wow, mm-hmm. this guy was really brilliant for his time.
0: Yeah, we really are. They've just fallen to pieces in the past few weeks, it seems. Yes, Well, I'm looking forward to reading that for sure, Tim, and I really appreciate you joining me today. This has been very informative. Thank you.
1: Well, Justin, thank you very much for having me on your program, and I hope you have a great week.
0: All right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at Spycraft 101, or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is always lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.